everyone, and welcome to the Stroke Special Interest Group podcast. Today, we'll be discussing an important part of everyone's day, sleep. We will be discussing an article called The Association Between Sleep Duration and Functional Disability in Inpatient Stroke Rehab with one of its authors, Dr. Catherine Siangsakan. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today, Dr. Siangsakan. Can you please tell us first a little bit about your background and what got you interested in sleep? Thanks for having me, and I'm excited to be here. I am an associate professor in physical therapy and rehab science at the University of Kansas Medical Center, and I'm a physical therapy by training, but how I got into sleep started as a clinical question. After I graduated from physical therapy school, I worked full-time as a clinician, and I worked in outpatient clinic, but we saw a lot of outpatient neuro individuals. So many of them had sleep issues, and I really felt ill-equipped on what to talk to them about their sleep other than positioning, things like that. But that's really what piqued my interest is just having all of these patients that were having sleep issues. So after I practiced for a couple of years, I decided to go back and get a PhD. So I went back to University of Kansas Medical Center where I'm, I'm now on faculty, but that's where I did my PhD in rehab science. And Lara Boyd was on faculty at a KU Med at that time. And she was studying and still is studying. She's now at the University of uh, British Columbia up in Vancouver. She's studying um, how factors influence learning, motor skill learning after a stroke. So things like type of practice, amount of practice, dose of practice, feedback after practice. So this was now back in 2004. And this was when um, research was coming out, just starting to come out about the importance of sleep for learning new skills. College, young college-aged individuals, they'd practice a, a motor task, they would sleep and they'd do better on it. But it was like, well, gosh, well, what would happen um, for individuals who'd had a neurologic condition or disease, in this particular case, people had a stroke. And so it was kind of a natural pairing between her interest in factors that influence motor learning, my interest in sleep. Long story short, I did my study, my dissertation on, you know, if people sleep after they had a stroke, does that influence motor learning? And indeed it does. Really, the importance of that is, is yes, I, I learned lots about research and research method, but it really gave me the opportunity to learn a whole lot more about sleep and just understanding much more so how important sleep is for pretty much every function of the body. Like, yes, it's important for learning new skills, but much broader than that as well. And so really then that started my, my line of research to understand how is sleep associated with health-related outcomes? So like fatigue, cognitive function, physical function, but then also behavioral interventions to help people sleep better. So we've done exercise trials in people with MS. A lot of my work here lately has been an intervention called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And how does that improve insomnia symptoms as well as comorbid health outcomes? So, and I'm also very passionate about getting the word out to physical therapists about the importance of sleep and what can we as physical therapists do to help our clients sleep better. So I, I have undergone training in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. I'm also a certified lifestyle health and wellness coach as well, which has been very, very helpful um, in my CBTI application for research. So that's really but how I got into to sleep and, and sleep research. That's really interesting. And I think it's great that you've taken that next step to try to really inform therapists that there's something that we can do because I feel like neurological injuries, those patients really do need sleep. I think it's really relevant for any type of physical therapy patient. And I think everyone's really had that patient that's been like, I sleep, I feel like is really affecting my function. So I think that's awesome. Can you next go into a little bit why sleep is so important for stroke recovery and rehab specifically? 
I think you bring up a good point how sleep really is important for everybody, right? Like everybody, um, but maybe even particularly for people who've had some sort of a neurologic injury or a neurologic consequence, such as a stroke. Absolutely, sleep is important for lots of different systems in the body. It affects our immune system, our cardiovascular health, our cognitive mm-hmm. function, you know, all those things. But mainly, you know, specifically for stroke and stroke recovery, we know that sleep's really important for neuroplasticity as well as for learning and memory formation. You know, so after somebody's had a stroke, a lot of what they're doing is learning new skills or relearning skills. And we know that sleep really is critically important for helping with that neuroplasticity and helping with that memory consolidation. But, you know, an important piece too is that cognitive function. We know that sleep is really important for cognitive function as well. And so we're asking these individuals who've had a stroke to pay attention, to switch between tasks, to remember the information that that we're providing them as healthcare providers. If they're not getting adequate sleep to support the optimal cognitive function, that's likely going to be impacting their recovery as well. We've done a couple podcasts on high intensity gait training. Any chance that you've touched upon this in sleep? Because that's kind of the first thing I think of. This new important intervention would require somebody to be well rested. Have you touched upon that at all? I have not, and I'm not aware that other people have. I mean, it does make sense that, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're doing this high intensity interval training, that if you're not getting adequate sleep, that they may influence the benefit of doing that. That being said, doing that high intensity activity may actually improve your sleep as well, you know, because we know that being, being very active is going to increase your sleep drive, which could improve sleep as well. So it could be oftentimes bi-directional, right? For sure. I didn't think of it like, can you talk about the factors that influence sleep post-stroke? both due to changes in the brain, as well as environmental factors. So there's obviously a lot going on after a stroke, as as you and the listeners know, if the stroke does impact the areas of the brain that are controlling sleep as well as wake, then there could be a direct consequence to sleep because of the stroke impacting those areas of the brain. But then there's also lots of secondary consequences as well. If you're in the hospital and you're in the rehab, you know, you're in a very different environment. It could be noisy, you're off your schedule, you're not sleeping in your own bed. Of course, there's also just the stress, the worry of having this, you know, life altering event. It's likely stressing finances, it's stressing relationships, it's just added stressor to you, which is going to impact your sleep as well. Of course, there's, they're having spasticity or they're having pain or they're having other issues because of the stroke as well that can be influencing their sleep. So it definitely is multifactorial. I would say it's very important to understand if we're going to address sleep in this patient population, you know, really what are the factors contributing to sleep? And it likely varies depending on the person. It could be due to the stroke for one individual. It could be the life stressors for another individual. It could be the environment for another, or, you know, some combination of all of those. That's helpful to know. And I just want to clarify. So you would say that people who've had a stroke may have changes in their brain that specifically would affect their sleep cycle in the brain. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's why there's such a difference in how sleep manifests after stroke, you know, and and, and that's why it's so interesting to study because Mm -hmm. after people have had a stroke, some people have a, have a big increase in their total sleep time, whereas people, other people have a decrease in their total sleep time. And so is it, the brain is trying to recover from that stroke. And so they need more sleep, which I, I think is highly likely, mm-hmm. you know, or have they, has the stroke impacted those areas of the brain that are regulating that sleep-wake cycle? Mm-hmm. Very possible. So again, and there's lots of different things that are, be, that are going to be going into influencing a person's sleep right after they've had a stroke or even, you know, for a period of time after they've had a stroke. I think that's really important for the listeners to know, because I feel like it could really provide clarity for some of the patients that 
are going through a lot. And I've definitely heard people feel like, oh, am I going crazy? Is it just, is it like, am I really experiencing this or is it just because of the environmental factors? So that's helpful. Can you give us an overview of what you were looking at in this study and your findings? So this study, again, it really emerged as a clinical question. This was a really uh, a great collaboration between a, a couple of physical therapists at another hospital in town. They had been interested in doing research and I had been interested in doing a study like this because I was really curious on how is sleep impacting recovery in people that have stroke and, and and so it was really kind of a, a perfect marriage, you know, between mm-hmm. both of our institutions and, and us as researchers and clinicians. But we really wanted to be able to look at, first of all, just how does sleep change during the inpatient rehab course? You know, there have been other studies that have looked at, you know, just a single time point of, you know, at the beginning of admission of rehab or hospitalization for the stroke. But there really is not as much evidence about, you know, looking across the entire length of time that you're in, particularly in inpatient rehab. So that was really just, you know, can we characterize what sleep duration and sleep looks like over that entire inpatient day? And then importantly, too, then, you know, how is total sleep time and sleep efficiency, is that predictive of functional recovery. And we didn't know, obviously that's why we did the study, but you know, is sleep at admissions important predictor or is sleep at discharge the important predictor? So that really was the point of doing the study. It's just kind of twofold again, looking at change in sleep over time, but then also is sleep an important predictor of functional recovery. How did you characterize poor sleepers versus good sleepers? And how did this determine those definitions slash categories? So we quickly realized, right? Like we couldn't just, lop off at the magic seven hours, right? Like more than seven hours is good sleep, less than seven hours is considered bad sleep. And and really that's based on the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. They issued a um, paper that said that that recommended at least seven hours of sleep, you know, but then we had some people that were getting nine, 10 hours of sleep, which some people and I would agree that amount of sleep likely indicates that there's some underlying issue going on, likely a sleep disorder is oftentimes, or, or some other issue is going on. So while they may be getting, you know, more sleep, it's not necessarily healthy sleep. And so we wanted to really be able to kind of be thoughtful on how we categorize people into these good sleepers or bad sleepers. And we did that based on their total sleep time, both at admission and at discharge. And so we, we included people that good sleepers as if they had optimal sleep, which again, we defined as seven to nine hours. And if they stayed optimal, so meaning at admission, they were seven to nine hours. And then at discharge, they were seven or nine hours. Or if they started with more than nine or less than seven at, at admission, but then became good sleepers, meaning then at discharge, they were at that seven to nine hour mark, they would be considered the good sleepers. And the poor sleeper then would, would be kind of the, the reverse of that. Either if they stayed long sleep duration greater than nine hours or um, low sleep duration, less than seven, or if they change from an optimal sleeper to either greater than nine or less than seven, which I know kind of sounds clunky, but, but again, you know, thinking of optimal sleep duration as being seven to nine hours. Again, there's some variation and and probably how you could define that, but we we did want to be cognizant of too much sleep is probably not a good thing, probably indicates some sort of a a sleep issue, but obviously, you know, lots of evidence that not getting sufficient sleep is not good for optimal health either and and likely not good for, for stroke recovery. It's interesting. I did, before I read this article, I didn't think about how too much sleep could be detrimental, but definitely makes sense. Yeah, and it's, you know, there probably are some people, you know, that maybe do have 
a greater sleep need. So really mm-hmm. do need, you know, nine hours of sleep for, for optimal health, mm-hmm. but that's probably few and far between. And, and I Got also want to say initially right after a stroke, I would suspect that the body, the brain mm-hmm. likely does need more sleep just to help with that recovery period. Makes sense. So absolutely getting, you know, maybe more than seven, eight, nine hours of sleep may indicate that your brain is healing, which is, would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then if, if, if it does not then resume kind of that normal duration, that's when we would then start to be concerned that, you know, is it a sleep disorder? Or are there other issues that mm-hmm. are going on that could be disrupting their sleep? Does total sleep time include naps and what role do naps play? Are they good or bad? For this study, total sleep time did not include naps. We, we looked at total sleep time at night. We actually did look at, because the actigraphs are worn 24-7 for the entire course of the rehab stay. So my research assistant, she did look at all the actigraphs and, and there were not napping periods. Yes, total sleep time generally means sleep at night, but in, in this particular population that there were no naps, at least registered on the actigraph for the, the study participants. And then your question about, you know, are sleeps good or bad? You know, like, like lots of things, you know, it depends, right? You know, I'm a big believer that if you feel like you need to take a nap, then take a nap. Got uh, it. But just know that you may have to delay your bedtime. You may need more time to then have your sleep drive build up. So yes, absolutely. Naps may be helpful in, in that regard. You know, the issue with, for a lot of people, the issue with, you know, needing a nap on a regular basis can oftentimes indicate that there's something going on at night that's disrupting your sleep. So naps, I guess, in and of themselves are not bad, but it could just indicate that there is something then that's disrupting your sleep at night. And that's why then you're not getting sufficient sleep at night. And and then why you kind of feel like you need to take a nap during the day. You know, obviously there's some cultural significance to Mm -hmm. that as well. You know, there's some cultures that do take an afternoon nap and that of Mm -hmm. course is part of kind of their cultural norm likely doesn't indicate that they all have, you know, a sleep disorder, (laughs) but you know, in U S culture, that would not be the norm. And so, so yeah, so that's when it can become a concern. In this study, you looked at average amount of sleep over several day period. What about variability? If a patient sleeps three hours one night, but then 12 hours the next day, does this make up for the sleepless night? That is a great question. Variability is actually one of the, is a sleep outcome that more and more people are starting to look at. We actually reported a study recently in people with MS that looked at variability and how that might, sleep variability in particular, and how that might be more indicative of fatigue in people Mm -hmm. with MS, as well as depression, anxiety, than just looking at the average total sleep time or sleep efficiency. Because most of the time, you're right, most of the time, you know, we take that seven nights of sleep and we average it to get a single number. But, you know, yes, variability is, can be a big concern, you know, to your point of if you get seven hours one night, nine hours the next, three hours the next versus, you know, kind of a steady seven hours. And, and yes, you know, if we think about sleep health, one of the kind of the tenets is having a regular sleep schedule, because that really helps us to entrain our circadian rhythm. So certainly, you know, there's much more emphasis on having a regular sleep schedule, how variability in our sleep can impact our circadian rhythm, which then we're also understanding how, you know, our circadian rhythm then really drives lots of different body systems. So that could be having negative health consequences in multiple different ways. Seems like a lot of what you do with people is most likely education, would you say? I provide CBTI as part of our research studies. So CBTI then is a specific intervention for insomnia. Mm-hmm. So it, it includes behavioral aspects as well as cognitive aspects to reframe the negative thoughts that oftentimes are, are surrounding insomnia. For physical therapists and clinical practice, you know, I think a big piece of what we can do is education. Mm-hmm. And I would maybe even take a step back as, you know, making sure that 
our clients with neurologic conditions, particularly with stroke, that their sleep is being assessed. Is that the PT or, you know, is that a different healthcare provider? I think the mm -hmm. big question is, or the big issue is someone should be doing it. If it's the neuro neurologist, physiatrist, maybe it is the PT. It could probably depend on the clinical practice, but yes, assess sleep and then provide education. And again, as part of a multidisciplinary team, just making sure that who is the person or who is the healthcare provider providing that education for every person who's had a stroke, but then absolutely, you know, the PT and other healthcare providers should absolutely be reinforcing that education about healthy sleep practices. We know about, you know, regular sleep schedule, trying to keep the bed for sleep, relaxation techniques are so key. Absolutely. Reinforcing that, that positive, healthy sleep behaviors is really important. In this study, the FIM was unable to capture differences due to sleep quality. What would you recommend assessing to better understand the impact of sleep on function? We didn't find an association between total sleep time or sleep efficiency at admission or discharge with the FIM. Although um, we said that the total sleep time admission was, was trending um, because significance was not quite uh, below 0.05. But I do wonder if the FEM perhaps wasn't sensitive enough. So maybe we do need a more sensitive functional measure. You know, maybe we need to look at walking speed, gait ambulation, balance. You know, those are a few ideas to look at. I also think cognitive function would be a, an interesting outcome to look at as well. And also obviously very pertinent to um, rehab outcomes as well. The majority of participants in this study were poor sleepers. Do you think this is due to stroke or is this representative of the general population? We did find um, that over half of the participants were considered to be poor sleepers. And of those individuals, most of them had low sleep duration at admission and at discharge. So they remain below that seven hours. And so for, for the general population, though, it's about 35 percent ish. You know, it depends obviously on the study, but that's a statistic from the Sleep Foundation, 35 percent of adults in the United States do not get adequate sleep duration, wow, um, which would be less than the percentage, you know, that we saw in our study. So yes, we, we know that not getting adequate sleep is, is very prevalent, you know, across the board in lots of different populations, but appears to be more of an issue in people that had a stroke, you know, but I think is, is it, is it the stroke itself or is it also, again, the stresses that go with that, the being mm -hmm. in an hospital or an inpatient rehab, you know, the stresses that go with that, the environmental factors, so really then a good population to compare that to would be other people going through inpatient rehab as well. In this study, you used actographs. Many patients might be able to monitor sleep using Fitbits or Apple watches. Is there a lot of a difference between these devices? And what about just recording the time you go to bed and wake up without technology? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of different ways to look at, you know, sleep duration um, and sleep quality. And the, the good thing about actigraphs or actigraphy is that those are research grade wearables. And so those have been shown to be valid and reliable compared to polysomnography, whereas the majority of the commercially available wearables have not been compared to polysomnography. Now, that being said, some have been, you know, the, the big issue is that, you know, technology is constantly changing. And so it's hard to, you know, constantly be doing those studies to, to look at validity and reliability. So that's my big caution is it has that particular wearable been shown to be valid and reliable. And we do know that in general, wearables either overestimate sleep duration and sleep quality or underestimate duration and sleep quality. And, and, and particularly for people who have movement disorders and people who have poor sleep. And so it would seem to indicate that those commercially available wearables 
may not be the most accurate way to assess sleep. Now, that being said, you know, could there be some benefit? Well, sure. You know, if we're, if this, if the person's wearing it day after day, you know, you're able to look at that change within the individual and then absolutely, you know, just bringing that awareness to sleep is, has, I think, a bit of big benefit of, you know, this emergence of using commercially available wearables, um, you know, and it sparks those conversations that maybe we wouldn't be having with our clients otherwise, if they do have a wearable. And as far as just keeping track of your sleep with like a sleep lock, you know, that's another great way to track sleep. I mean, you know, obviously there it, it, it's self-report, you know, and so the person has to be able to remember to do it. We don't always want people staring at a clock either, because that isn't necessarily mm. best for sleep, but certainly, you know, that, that is a very easy oftentimes way to track sleep as well is, is just by keeping a sleep log. What are some tangible ways you would suggest we as physical therapists could employ to optimize sleep quality slash show it is important for our patients with stroke? Making sure patients get sleep is a very multidisciplinary. You kind of touched upon this. I think the key is making sure that some healthcare provider is in charge of assessing for sleep issues and then addressing those sleep issues. And we as physical therapists certainly can help reinforce that education that can be provided. And I think of education or sleep health promotion education as being like four-pronged, you know, one being focused on strategies to enhance circadian rhythm and then strategies to increase sleep drive. And then other ones being strategies to promote relaxation techniques our relaxation. And then other, the other bucket is kind of your general sleep hygiene. So the behaviors, the environment that promote optimal sleep, you know, and so again, we can certainly be facilitating kind of those four buckets, I call them buckets, but those four areas of sleep health promotion. And of course, you know, it's going to depend on the individual, which bucket do we need to emphasize for that particular individual? It's going to vary dramatically based on that person. But, but the key is somebody needs to be doing it. We know sleep is so critical for health, for well-being, for recovery. So somebody needs to do it. And then PTs should certainly be an important piece of that multidisciplinary team. What would you say your take-home message to clinicians is regarding sleep post-stroke during inpatient rehab? So I think that is my take-home message, you know, that, that somebody needs to be doing it. If it's not happening at your facility, to be the advocate for it to happen and to come up with a plan for, you know, which healthcare provider is going to be assessing sleep and be in charge of addressing sleep and making sure that it gets carried out across the plan of care, you know, and again, knowing that PTs, you know, we are a doctoring profession. We have a big role in and health promotion and wellness. We obviously have a big role in, in promoting function and people who've had a stroke and sleep is a big piece of that. And so absolutely, if our clients are not sleeping well, making sure that we are, are doing all that we can, meaning, you know, reinforcing those sleep health behaviors, addressing those negative thoughts, and then absolutely referring them as needed. If, if depression mm-hmm. is a big issue or if anxiety is a big issue or socioeconomic stresses are a big issue, you know, referring them to the appropriate person as, as well um, is very important. Yeah, I think just, you know, being able to tell the patient, and the family member, hey, this I think is something that's really contributing to it, to difficulty and advocate for them to get good care wherever that is, is important. And absolutely, definitely within our scope. Based on the results that you found from your study, are there any questions that have developed that you would like to further explore? And do you have any future research being conducted on stroke and sleep? Identifying what are the factors contributing to disrupted sleep in people who've had a stroke, Um, or I would even expand that to any neurologic condition in in patient rehab and really understanding those factors, because until we understand all those nuances of those factors, it's hard to then intervene to adequately address those particular factors. So I, I see that as being the next step is, you know, understanding those factors and then employing strategies that would be addressing each of those factors. 
I, I am not working on this project right now. I would love for, you know, somebody in the audience listening to take that on and do it. I think it's a much needed project. You know, we have a few studies on CBTI right now that has been a big focus of my lab, but absolutely, I think there's a lot of opportunity for research and continuing this line of research, getting more people involved and, and interested in this line of work would be fantastic. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of healthcare fields are really understanding now how much the mind does affect how you physically function. So I think it's definitely very topical. Absolutely. So thank you for your work, Dr. Tengsikhan. And thank you for speaking to us today. Please continue to look out for more of the Stroke Special Interest Group podcast on ANPT Synapse, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity.